When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello there, and welcome to Think the Maker, a podcast about heroes, princesses, scoundrels, hokey religions, ancient weapons, and all things Star Wars. I'm your host, Adam Russell. Hey, everybody. My name is Nick. I'm also a host, and I'm ready to talk about Star Wars right now. Let's go. And I am your <laughs> third host. Not Star Wars enough. Talk about Star Wars more. <laughs> uh, 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 my name is Mike Ryan Key Forrester. <laughs> filling in for Ryan Key. So much more facial hair, though. They have been, I've been, and I feel like I've been keeping the the bench warm. I mean, I'm really just, I'm sitting right here. Yeah, this is great. It's the exact temperature of your butt right here on this podcast. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. <laughs> warm bench. All right. Well, we're gonna get straight into it. Too many things. Too many things. Celebrations coming up. Too busy. We're talking about the Book of Boba Fett's special, wonderful, delightful behind-the-scenes documentary, Disney Gallery. I'm surprised that they're not putting these all like under one Disney gallery thing on, on Disney plus, by the way, is anyone, did anyone else think that mm, they should? Cause uh, there's also Marvel ones, right? Yeah. The, the assembled thing is like a multi-episode single, uh-huh. like a series. Pretty much. Yeah. 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 But each one of these stands alone and it says like season one, episode one. You know what I noticed is that I don't know how long it's been there. Cause there hasn't been too much Star Wars to watch lately, but there is like a full on chronological timeline section now like starting with like the phantom menace but then it's like after attack of the clones there's like the thing that says the clone wars and it just keeps going so that's cool they're chipping away they're honing it over time it's good next week let's break down the entire disney plus app for two hours (laughs) (laughs) you know the buttons are uh, actually 14 (laughs) pixels wide which you know is a different take from Mm. what i was expecting but it's nice go ahead and tap in the top right corner okay Mm. i noticed they're using san francisco font real nice legibility (laughs) great typeface um i love this documentary it was great and the coolest part about it selfishly was that it confirmed pretty much everything from our den of antiquities section throughout the season yep pretty proud of that we did we did our homework not that we need to be reassured to feel smart or correct but it kind of does feel good feels pretty cool (laughs) What was your favorite part or what intrigued you guys about this? What were you stoked on? Uh, When they announced it going into it, for sure, I was like, show me more Luke stuff. Show me more Luke stuff. And it it kind of exceeded my expectations. And I'm sure we'll talk about it more. But the... There wasn't so much Luke stuff and Mark Hamill stuff, but what they gave us was like really, really intense stuff, I feel like. Like that stuff was so good. It could have been the whole episode for me, but it was what, maybe 10 minutes of the episode. And I was very, very happy with what I saw. Is it anyone else? But like every time I hear Mark Hamill talk about Luke Skywalker, I get like emotional. No, dude. Yeah, absolutely. I cried today. Like I had like, again, yeah, like (laughs) I had this urge to want to like tear up when I'm like, it's like seven o'clock at night. My wife's like watching me watch this documentary on the show that I already watched and did a freaking podcast on. She's like, you're all right. I'm like, I just, 
when he talks about Star Wars and he just loves it so much, and I'm like, you know, like just happy I don't know, he's happy, all right. <laughs> I just really, I mean, I think I think it's because like he has such a great way of talking about his reverence for wanting to still be involved because he understands this, and the fact that we'll like never see Harrison Ford ever talk about Han Solo is probably yeah. like the complete opposite, where you still have someone like Mark Hamill who is a definitive character in cinema history that's still giving so much to this role and just seeing characters like Ahsoka and seeing her freak out, even though they're coworkers. Oh, dude. I mean, it's amazing. It's so awesome. The smile on her face, the absolutely genuine glee that she was feeling was contagious. Yeah. On my little laptop screen watching it, I was like, ear to ear smiling and how stoked she was and she just like couldn't <laughs> contain herself. It was so sick. Which I also have to give Lucasfilm a lot of credit because the fact that she went in and was like, they didn't even tell me Mark was going to be yeah. on set. And I'm like, that's you hardcore, didn't, man. that's insane. I also loved the chin prosthetic they had to put him in because he's got a beard for another project he's working on. Hold on, that was a prosthetic over his beard? Yeah. I didn't notice that at all. What? I'm pretty sure. Because it doesn't it show him multiple times where he's well. There's the, the, his interview, his interview part. Yeah, he definitely has a beard, but that also seemed like definitely a different time. It was recorded yeah. separate. Yeah, was it okay? Yeah, I think because someone someone online was like, I think he was film. Isn't he filming? He's filming another show. He has been this yeah, season yeah. two I of another what it's show, called, right? Yeah, great. Now people are going to be like, absolutely not. But <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. No, they, they CG'd his beard off like um, like Superman's mustache for just for the <laughs> Disney gallery yeah. to confuse us. <laughs> Dude, this further solidified my belief, my hope, that Mark Hamill is so invested in the character and the character's legacy and future in Star Wars that I, I bet he's just willing to just give Disney whatever they need to continue putting Luke and stuff forever. Like, if you, you want me to sit down and for the next few weeks read the entire dictionary, you know, mm -hmm. motion capture, all of it, get all of my voice, get all of my facial expressions, everything. I'm sure he's down. I think he's just loving being the character again, bringing it to life. It probably doesn't hurt that he gets to see himself young doing new stuff. <laughs> it, it's really, really heartening. And I, I think he's in for the long haul. I can't imagine anyone being more stoked than him. I mean, especially with what, and we'll get into it later, like the process of this. I mean, he's, he's there. You know, yeah. so it's not like, hey, could you send us a line and we're going to modulate your voice and do all this stuff just so we say it was you. It's like, nah, he's there. He's he's that's Luke Skywalker. So, yeah, very awesome. And there, there has to be something deep down in him that since 1983 and Return of the Jedi was over and he was like everybody's hero for him. He probably was like, can we just do more? Yeah. And George Lucas was like, well, we're doing more Star Wars, but it's about your dad. <laughs> so it's like oh okay and and i think part of it too is like he's not harrison ford he doesn't have like he's certainly has a career don't you know not try to mince words here mark hamill is a superstar but he's didn't turn out to be harrison ford you know right. so like harrison ford has other things to distract him to make money has other iconic characters mark hamill to a lesser extent so for him 40 years later to be able to do this is it's luck, um, you know, like he can't, he has to feel grateful and, and lucky to a certain extent. I can imagine the two of them having a beer in like 1985 and Hamill's like, I'm, I'm ready to sign on whatever they got, whatever they got next. Let's do it. I'm ready to tell these stories. 
Meanwhile, Harrison Ford's like, um, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be the president. George Lucas is like, well, uh, the, the best idea we have is that there's a clone of you and it's called Luke with two U's. <laughs> Mark Hamill's like, uh, I forget it. I'm going to go do this theater <laughs> thing instead. <laughs> Robert Rodriguez, who got a lot of hate that I noticed at least online after this which I think wasn't deserved at all. I think there could be an argument made for maybe a slight mismatch of style, but there's no denying, especially after watching this, how enthusiastic this dude is for Star Wars, how much he loves Star Wars and cares about it, and how much hard work he put into bringing this thing to life. And it was one of my favorite parts, just listening to him Mm -hmm. talk about how and why and how he connects and all the deep conversations he had with Filoni and Favreau, I'm a fan. Yeah, and just, you know, opening the whole little doc here with him kind of just talking about George and and the ripple effects, I think is what the term he used, of George betting on himself when he was writing the original Star Wars and the fact that it all came from George Lucas's mind. You know, like yeah. to ad nauseum, we've, we've talked about the things that George used as references, but this all comes from George. It all worked because of George. And for Robert Rodriguez to kind of acknowledge that at the top of this documentary and just one of those things where he's got a mic on set to give a speech to stoke everyone out. And that's what he's going. That's, yeah. that's the, what he's saying. That's what he's leading off with is George Lucas, you know? So it, it's, it's, they have these Robert Rodriguez, Filoni, Favreau, they all obviously keep George in mind when making these series. And uh, we could tell. And there was a great quote from Favreau at the top too, about the necessity of respecting the original trilogy, everything George laid out all the way up until his retirement, the extended universe to some degree, and all the new canon. So I think it's probably easy to look at an older dude like Favreau and think, oh, he's just going to give us the original trilogy stuff because that's what he cares about. Mm -hmm. But clearly, I mean, he's not as deep of a nerd as as Filoni is, and Mm -hmm. Filoni's always dropping knowledge on him. Like, there's a good part where he's talking about it's like, "Ah, you know, there's another box like this, uh, Ahsoka's uh, lightsabers, uh, you know. So that's funny, but regardless... Favreau's, his fandom encompasses the whole thing, even though he's more mm-hmm. deeply rooted, obviously, in the original trilogy. Yeah. Another good thing he said, too, is like, I, I kind of got the sense. He said, like, they'll take a storyline and and kind of, like, look at all sides of it to see how it affects, like, the originals, expanded, uh, whatever. Yeah. In my head, I was like, does that mean that they kind of come up with things? And maybe him, maybe specifically him, because he's less versed in, like, all canon or, I guess, expanded universe maybe he might come up with storylines and like almost present them and people will be like, well, if we do this, that screws up this expanded storyline right, or right. this screws up something in the original trilogy. Well, we can't do this because of that. So, I mean, I think that's kind of a healthy way to approach writing Star Wars is yeah. can't necessarily just have us write it because we know everything and what we want to see. It's kind of like thinking outside of the box and then maybe trying to like reel it back a little bit. Is It'll help with uh, more creative storytelling, I think. There's a great little moment that he has talking about Boba Fett and what the expectations were for his character for a lot of people. And some of those, in some cases, a lot of those expectations being unmet or challenged. I think a lot of old school fans didn't see the Boba Fett that they hoped for. Mm -hmm. But Favreau had some really insightful things to say about that character. And I'm going to play that clip right now. As much fun as it is to think about a character who has questionable morality blasting his way through the galaxy, that only goes so far. 
you can't really explore storylines. It sounds good, but when you actually zoom in and explore what that what's going on with that character, if that character is just a lawless character who is doing really cool action sequences, that that's not Star Wars. Star Wars has to be about each character facing certain obstacles, usually uh, emotional ones as well as as physical ones. You know, there may be a villain you're facing off, but if there's no internal conflict going on with a character, you're losing half of what makes it impactful. Look at you, John. I think we talked about this on one of the episodes. As the fandom was kind of starting to turn a little bit, some of the fandom was starting to turn a little bit sour. I think I'd drawn the parallel to saying people wanted Boba Fett to be John Wick. Yeah. And I'm one of those people who's like, I'm shocked that anyone thought that John Wick, number one, was interesting enough to give us three more movies after that. <laughs> because for me, it's just like, oh, it's like, it's just violence porn, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was always like, okay, like the dude gets, the dude gets wronged and then goes out and kills everybody. And yeah, I'm like, that's every Denzel Washington movie over the past 10 years, you know, like I, I think there's just a certain part of what Favreau's trying to get at is that, and, and a point that I tried to make on the last time we talked about this, if you are an actual fan of Boba Fett, Favreau just pretty much said, we have a much bigger role for Boba Fett than just a bounty hunter that has no affiliation with anyone and is just going to hurt people because yeah. that's over real quick. And it shows that they want to develop Boba Fett's story all in, man. That's awesome. Especially if you're a fan of that character. Like, you should be geeked. Yeah, I think it is exactly what you said. The The John Wick reference is spot on. And it's fun for an episode. Like, we, we got in The Mandalorian when he wrecked all of those stormtroopers. But then, it's exactly what you said. Star Wars is about redemption and character growth and the journey. So, what do you expect? I guess a lot of people don't really realize that. They don't realize what they liked about something. Or... Maybe they don't like it as deeply as they thought. But I thought it was beautiful the way John laid it out. Speaking of people who get it, though, Tamara Morrison, dude. Tamura. As if I didn't already love the dude enough, this just took it to another level. I, I love that dude's voice. I love his attitude, his vibe. I just want to sit in a room with him and just listen to him talk and play his guitar, have a beer maybe. Maybe watch him do a bench press. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Talking about his press-ups. I'm like, press-ups? Oh, Bench press. Press up. Let's do some bench presses together. His enthusiasm for the character and, and the universe and his embrace of the fullness of the character and un deeper understanding, it's exactly what you want, exactly what you, what you want to see. And I love that, yes, this character was written by other people, but he shapes this character. And somebody said as much, I think it was Robert Rodriguez, was maybe like, Tamara Morrison is Boba Fett. And so much about Boba Fett comes from his own personality and his, and his own heritage and all the all the uh, the deep tribal roots that respect and spirit that he has is everywhere all over it whether it's the fighting style or the uh that sort of ritual dance that they had after the gaffy stick that he built mm -hmm. i just i love it so much it's so evident that everything we saw on screen was was genuine and this is this is the real shit here mm -hmm. and it's cool to be collaborative i feel like I definitely said it on a previous episode, probably when we were covering Book of Boba, but as much as we think we know about Boba Fett, most of it is unwritten. So why can't you bring in Tamara Morrison's background into this yeah. story that we're telling of Book of Boba Fett, like post-Return of the Jedi? Why couldn't you bring in Tamara Morrison's like actual heritage? 
Of course you can, you know, and I think it just makes it gives for a better performance and gives a new layer of kind of understanding of who Boba was post Sarlacc pit. And Filoni even said it, I think at some point, you know, he, he just said like surviving the Sarlacc pit was transitional for Boba Fett. You know, at that point he had been a bounty hunter and then lost the Tuscans. So then at the end of the book of Boba Fett, he was alone at that point and then he became a, a Tuscan and then yeah. lost the Tuscans. So then at the end of the book of Boba Fett, he's got Fennec, he's got Chrysanthemum, he's got the mods. Like he now has his own crew based around the idea of who he's become. That's a journey. That's good. I think there's a lot that could be said and I would love to hear him speak more about this, about being from a place in the world that was conquered by Europeans like every other place and having a connection to the indigenous people, knowing what a tribe like or a series of tribes like the Tuscans are going through on a planet like Tatooine, on a place like Australia, New Zealand. It's so genuine, again, because whether or not he, as a 20th, 21st century person, experienced any of that, that heritage and that shared cultural experience is part of his identity. Yes. Speaking of uh, faraway places and things, the Lawrence of Arabia references, mm. again, a thing that we that we picked up on. Oozing. It's so dope to see them on set in Video Village there looking at the film. Yeah, fully. Looking at refer- reference shots live. That was so cool, and it was so cool to admit it in a documentary. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, like really, here's what we're going for, and maybe sometimes it's just a reference, and then sometimes it's just a, no, just do that. <laughs> just yeah. make it look like the train from Lawrence of Arabia, and let's do this. So I appreciate that. Why not be transparent with the things we know already? You know, <laughs> like, we know that's what that is, and with all the other references also. It's like, no, we could tell. So it's cool that they just yeah. admit it. Just like George with the World War II footage and all of that, mm-hmm. he was brutally honest about his influences and i i think it would it would be disingenuous and off-brand for star wars to do anything but be transparent about the continued influences of things Mm -hmm. this episode is brought to you by shopify forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to shopify the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell with Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We got a little bit on Kersantan in this episode, not a ton. I would have liked to hear a little bit more about the mask and the, and the puppetry work. But there, there was a little nugget about the additional articulation in that mask versus the chewy mask, you know, with the, the brow and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I, I also thought it was really cool to hear about the difference in the eyes and the look. Chewie having these soft, caring kind of eyes, even though it'll rip your arms off. And Kersantan having piercing, really kind of menacing eyes. And it's mm-hmm. not just the design of the character, but it's who's in the suit. And from you know everything that anyone ever said about Peter Mayhew, it just all connects. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, he would, Carrie was even saying too, like, even if he didn't have like, quote unquote lines or anything like that, or facial expressions, even just the way he stood and stuff was supposed to be so, give you, give off so much of a different feel than Chewie, you know, where Chewie was a little bit more, and I'm sure this wasn't, I I guess I'm not sure, but that probably wasn't talked about in the original trilogies, but with something like Chrysanthemum be like, no, look meaner when you're just standing there. 
you know, yeah. like that sort of thing. And, and yeah, that, that works. Give him the, the people's eyebrow, like the rock yeah. does. I yeah. felt like Chris Hannon was doing that the whole time. Just had this, like <laughs> this eyebrow going up and down. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think part of the reason they wouldn't have gone into that is probably proprietary in some regard. Yeah. And I think, I think John Rosengram probably said we can't give too much away. So I'm assuming there's probably something going on in there. Um, if it's not also a, a off, like maybe like possibly like a offsite puppet or something. You know what I mean? A puppeteer right, right. Uh, that might've been doing that. So it's pretty cool. Oh, one other thing I left out about Tamara Morrison and shout out to all the haters again. Kathleen Kennedy talked about George, quoted George saying, I found this amazing actor from New Zealand. His name's Tamara Morrison, blah, blah, blah. If you ever do Boba Fett, you should cast him. So that's rad. I mean, <laughs> long ago, I mean, like George mentioned, he knew that at some point he would have to hand off Star Wars and he had to find the right hands to put it in. Seems like he always knew Kathleen Kennedy would probably be the person. So anyone who thinks that, again, she just swooped in and she's just going to do whatever she wants with Star Wars and ruin it for everybody, there it is right there. I doubt she's making this up. She's known George Lucas for 45 years. So <laughs> yeah. Longer than the haters have. Yeah. <laughs> Longer than a lot of haters have been alive. What was cool about that too, and you know, I think, because we're going to move on and, and that's cool, but like Tamura... I think has this, like if you like the interviews and stuff, a lot of times he leads on like he's dumb and doesn't know anything, but like the dude is on it. And I oh, love yeah. even like when they do like, like I can't remember if it was a current press, but I think it was for Book of Boba Fett. Him and Ming-Na Wen are doing like a, you know, what's your favorite lightsaber color? And like a color popped up that was like purple. And Tamara's like, oh, I don't like that color. I don't like that <laughs> color at all. You know, yeah. and you're like, that's amazing. Like he's, you know, and, and someone brought up like attack of the clones and he's like, Oh, that's the worst movie. That's a horrible movie. I hate that movie. You know? And you're like, yeah, a, a role that he did 20 years ago where he, you know, had this minimal kind of a minimal role in the overall story of star Wars besides like all the stuff that came after. Right. For him to be like, I still have serious love for all the roles I've played as kind of one guy. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> Uh, before we move on from the people kind of behind the scenes a little bit, Robert Rodriguez, when we saw, I believe it was in the gallery, it must have been for Mandalorian season two, and they were talking about his Boba Fett episodes. Because of COVID, I want to say, he made his own like animatics at home, you know, with like toys and yeah. like stuff like that. It was so cool to see him basically do the same thing again this time with that like crude, but like definitely put some effort into him like he just kind of acted out that sand monster thing yeah and he just put together a video and sent it off and it just seemed like the you know the special effects people were like this is amazing yeah this is such a good reference for what you want and that was probably just like an afternoon <laughs> that for, for yeah. robert rodriguez tinfoil and a coat hanger or whatever yeah, he was yeah, tin, yeah. you know well there was that up. but then there was the video part too yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but he, I think he had said too, there were a couple of times where he had said that like the volume as a technology and having the brain bank behind him, he, he was getting used to that too, because I don't think anyone would ever call a guy like Robert Rodriguez be like, oh, okay, boomer. Like that dude right. did Sin City on n no live sets and just incredible. Right. But the guy obviously has a process, right? And so you get this like groundbreaking technology. And if you're not, you kind of get thrown into it, which is why I think it was interesting that he chose 
largely to shoot outside in Simi Valley for his episode of The Mandalorian that kind of kicked all the stuff off. It shows that, like, the guy, you know, he wants to, he wants to have, you know, let me do Robert Rodriguez. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and that's, that's, that's where I think some of the, some of the back and forth came from. And I think some people were just like, his style is so obvious. That's where I think people were starting to have issue. But like, then you, in this particular gallery, you just got a even better, clearer picture of his process. And you can totally understand why the volume is a crazy thing for someone like that, who's largely relied on those old school film techniques that he clearly loves too, right? Yeah. Is it me or did was I didn't really see the volume that often in this. No. It seemed like there was a lot of set work. For sure. And like blue screen, more so than the other the other behind the scenes docs. I mean with the amount of time they spent in the flashbacks outside in the desert, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But also you know we know the technology now. I mean I think if right. every, if every gallery talks about the volume, if people are gonna be like, okay dude, we get it. Mm. You've built nine of these things now. Sick. Last thing on his animatic and all that stuff. As they were rolling the the video where he played, he has kind of the centaur thing where he, he did one on all fours and then he did another one standing up, doing the weird posture and, and splice them together. All I could think of in my head was, okay, how would I do that? Okay, so you have your camera on a tripod mm-hmm. and then you do it once, but then you have to match your, you know what I mean? Like you have to match the height. You have to like squat to the right height. So when you splice it together... It all matches. I bet it was hilarious looking in his house. Like I imagine his kids running in like, dad, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Why are you standing like that? It's so dope that this, this dude, this seasoned film director is still just, you know, in, in his guest house or whatever he's doing, crawling around like a sand monster. Real go-getter, that guy. Do you think his kids are used to it? Like, do you think his kids are like, oh, dad's just working? Oh, there he goes again. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I remember correctly, the gallery episode, I think they helped him with the some more of the like animatic stuff they did like in their backyard or something. I'm pretty sure the kids were involved in that one. So they're probably still. Oh, in the first, yeah. In the, the Mando episode for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of practical things, the Rancor, let's talk about the Rancor for a minute. Oh boy. So sick. And it was so great to hear from Doug Chang, you know, a dude who worked on the prequels, who was part of that, that CG fest, not as much CG as most people think, but the kind of the, the first fully CG character came out of that film. So it's famous for that. It's great to hear him say something like, well, we could put them on these green horse saddles, essentially, or we could build a real Rancor and put them on that. Why wouldn't we do that? Then Danny Trejo talking about, you have to remind yourself for a moment when you're in it that it's not a real animal. Mm-hmm. It just seems so fun to be there. Because they had the full, thing, full size thing with the head and the shoulders, even though they didn't have the arms. But if you're standing next to it, you know, at head height, the thing's eye and it's moving and articulating in your face. That's got to feel as real as anything, you know? Real and also just excitement. It's such a yeah. rare thing that people grew up with this new thing that, that like there's an old rancor. We're doing it in a new way that is actually more realistic. The other one was just a puppet, basically. This is, oh no, we're going to put. Boba Fett on top of it and we're going to act, you know, like yeah. besides it looking real and being able to like act, there's got to be this just sense of joy while doing it. And also while creating it, like, I can't believe we get to make the Rancor's head and shoulders. <laughs> yeah. People got to be stoked with that, which I mean, in general, you know, Filoni says really in closing in, in this whole documentary that like him and John want people working on Star Wars who are stoked. And yeah, you could just tell, you could absolutely tell. 
And that between that puppet and the Athorian mayor puppet, the mayor of Mos Espa, Mayor McCheese, was it, right? <laughs> was it Rodriguez who walked in and said, "Like, I can't believe how real it looks. It's it's insane." Or maybe it was Filoni. I think Filoni. Yeah. Yeah. That thing, and between that and bringing Clone Wars things in, so you've got this character that's from the first, you know, third of the first movie 45 years ago, and then you've got the Clone Wars version of it, the Clone Wars evolution of it with the translator, and then that all culminates on screen with a fully articulated, amazing, super realistic-looking puppet that even on the, you know, the cameras they were shooting the the behind-the-scenes stuff with looked hella real, like even more real than Grogu to me, with all the hair and everything, Mm -hmm. unreal. But the uh, the effects artist from Legacy Effects, John Rosengrant, who designed the thing, was inside the suit because I can't remember if this was on Armor Party or something else, talking about how a lot of times when they're designing those things, the only head reference or body reference that they have is the artist who's doing the actual build. Right. So they end up in the suit sometimes. Mm-hmm. I'm imagining that was the situation too. And then, uh, Mike, did you put this in here? Somebody else? Mm-hmm. Yeah, John's son, maybe. What is this? Yeah, so Legacy Effects is the company that did the initial like Mandalorian. Like they did, they were the kind of the kickoff company that did most of the of the suits and the costumes. And Legacy is also the same studio that does Grogu. And John's son Derek is the lead painter for Legacy Effects, and he's the one who does the Beskar finish on Din Djarin. Sick. Whole family affair of talented people. Nepotism. Dang. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes nepotism kicks ass. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but I think I think what's really awesome about seeing that we're still getting these really, 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 I want to say progressive prosthetics and that the fact that this art is, I mean, do you, we all know how easy it would be for them to have just made a CGI version of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's totally at that point. And I think you could see also in how this show was, and that's why I actually like respect people like Robert Rodriguez, because like, he's going to try to do, you know, they could have made the mod chase completely CGI and probably would have been way faster, probably would have quelled all the complaints that everyone had that it looked like, you know, a ride, but that they put those Vespa, space Vespas on a trailer and like you could see that they were going they were physically going and moving and all that kind of stuff so in a lot of ways like we that is Star Wars you know building stuff is Star Wars and not knowing like all the details so yeah I'm, I'm like that's that's Star Wars for sure yeah a speeder on like a, a merry-go-round basically like or an arm you know all those speeder shots they were just spinning yeah. with, <laughs> with a radius of like 12 feet maybe yeah 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 that's the legacy of Star Wars just Build it for real, make it work. They did bring, I know when they were talking, it was more about the N1, but Favreau was talking about bringing George's love for like that classic car thing yeah. and like American modding out your cars and stuff like that. He was talking to it in reference to N1, but I mean, to me, that's also just like a very clear, like tick the box of what those mod racers were, the mod speeders were, you know, like yeah. like these are, are in reference to something of that era or i guess it was more of a british thing than an american thing but it's still of that same time frame it's stuff again that we know like hey come check out my classic car let me take this like giant drape off of it check this thing out it's like that's exactly what 
Pelly did with Din in that garage, <laughs> yeah. but it's, I mean, it's, it's badass. It's like a, just a fun moment. And to bring it full circle to, cause we started talking about Doug, I got chills and my eyes welled up with tears when they put him in the N1 in the volume oh, yeah. and let him fly. Yeah. Like, oh my goodness, what a feeling like that was so cool. You could see for him, he just got out in like the most like low key way and was like, Hey, that was awesome, guys. And like gave like a little <laughs> thumbs up. I'm like, your brain just melted. I know it did. Because <laughs> <laughs> you think about, he says the last time he was in it for uh, the Phantom Menace, they, you know, they built several full-size ones, but they were surrounded by green screen. Mm-hmm. So he sits back in the same thing. He talks about, you know, I feel like I haven't aged. I'm yeah. back there in 1998 filming, mm-hmm. but he has the full volume around him now. Yeah. Man. Think about the, the emotional level up. I said earlier that I didn't really notice the volume that much in this doc, but like that was the one time where I was just like, what an insane technology. Cause yeah. the, it's going real time, you know, like it's the, the, the footage on the volume while Doug is in the Starfighter is just flying by as if he's like in Top Gun, you know? Like, yeah. Wow. That is cool. Let me do that. Jealous. <laughs> All right. Let, one more thing on uh, practical effects and prosthetics and stuff, and then let's get to the dude and the thing cad bane again haters just watch this and just listen and take in what they're saying listen to all the care and love and practical like pragmatic details that make up this portrayal of cad bane and just embrace it because it's amazing the fact that like it's the actor's real mouth that's the actor's real lips those prosthetic teeth are right on his teeth all of that's done on the skin tight prosthetic to make it structural and not just be a latex mask that's thrown on a head or that's puppeted some other way, you know? So when he's speaking, he's articulating with his own mouth, with his own voice. I already loved it and this made me love it even more. It's really, again, just legacy being truly incredible in being able to fit that much action into something that's real, you know? And I think it should make people who are in love with special effects, this kind of stuff should geek you out. Yeah. And and then what was awesome is like you heard Corey Burton's voice over the loudspeaker to give like Dorian like the, the cues. So you knew that he had to clearly recognize the cadence in which Corey talks for CAD. And I, I just thought that was awesome. And then, and then just to kind of have, you know, Dave talking specifically about being like, you know, it was really important that we hit the hat. And, uh, you know, online people are like, I wish his hat was bigger. Well, it's like Filoni was like, no, 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 no. We cannot make it comically large. Right. Because, you know, like it is comically large in the show, but because everything on Clone Wars looks like everyone's made out of rubber, you don't really mind. Right. But there is, if he would have shown up with a four foot, you know, Stetson, people would have been like, (laughs) what is going on with this guy? Uh, So I think, I think they crushed it. I think it was the perfect blend of. I really just kind of fell in love with the way that they did CAD. And I think stylistically, again, too, like, let's not also forget that there has been a massive amount of time since we last saw him in in Clone Wars. So they're clearly not people who make design choices just to make them. Right. There was clearly, like, you know, make him a little more pale. This dude is old. Like, I know that people are like, we don't know how old the Duros are. It's like, well, no, I get all that. I'm with you. But, like, you know, this is a grizzled gunslinger who still doesn't really know who he wants to work for. And, you know, I think soaking up some of his saturation 
seeing this documentary just made me be like, they crushed that character. They crushed it. Yeah. I just want more now. Give me this dude as the central villain in a whole additional series, you know, any era. Because, they can, you know, they can do it with the prosthetics. It doesn't matter who's behind it. Ultimately, they've got the voice. Give us more Cad Bane. Please and thank you. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the man himself. Let's talk about the return of the return of Luke Skywalker. Mm-mm-mm. Graham Hamilton, the stand-in actor. I feel like that's not doing him justice to call him a stand-in actor. The, the body double, the face double. He looks so much like Mark Hamill to begin with. Yeah. Th- this is not to discount the amazing work that they did, but they had it much easier given just how close his, his facial structure and everything is. I, I went digging for a photo of him trying to find a young Mark Hamill and him with the same pose to try to lay them over each other and see how closely their eyes and everything, how closely all their ratios meet up because damn, there were some shots where at least from the, the my couch to the TV at that distance, as it flashed by, I was like, was that him or the final thing? <laughs> yeah, I agree. You know? I was like, Oh, I was like, that's cool that I can't even tell. Oh, that's not him. That's not Mark. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I was surprised. I mean, you could tell because the final product was such an improvement. It's crazy how it seemed so different behind the scenes, you know, like right. what they did, the process, I guess on the base layer was kind of the same, but on like to the nth degree, like between having Mark on set dressed up as Luke, by the way, you know, like I feel yeah. like that was an absolute choice by Filoni or someone to be like, we got to get Luke his Jedi garb, you know, like he can't be yeah. on set acting and not be, even though we're not going to use it, like we're not going to use him at all. He's got to be the character. So yeah. I, I really, really enjoyed that. Just seeing current day Mark Hamill in, you know, Return of the Jedi garb. But man, the process just seemed like it just went up in a year's time, like a thousand percent. And it was so worth it. And man, the care that they have, everybody from Mark to just anyone involved in creating Luke Skywalker for all of us. So much appreciation there. So the the technology breakdown, it was still a little bit ambiguous about what percentage the final product was of deep fake to 3D model to face swap and just kind of traditional compositing. But a few things are certain. One, they had this thing called a flux rig, which was a single camera with cameras on either side, kind of three in a row, infrared cameras. And you could see around the lenses, there were infrared lights, which you you can't see the light. Of course, it's not in the visible spectrum, but that gives you this stereo image meaning you can see the left and the right at different perspectives, just like you hold you know, your finger in front of your face and go back and forth, closing one eye, closing the other, camera one, camera two, Wayne's World style, and you see the different perspectives. That, in addition to the markers on the face, some of them with infrared ink, so you don't see them on the actual actor with a normal camera, that gives you a near-perfect 3D model of at least the front side of the face. So all of that reference... Although it's all ultimately replaced, it's easier to map things and make sure they line up and capture the kind of thing that you would capture in a full mocap sh- suit with the, like, like they do for Avatar, like they do for a lot of things where it's almost like a headset, but it's a camera at the end of that boom in front of the face. They use the same system actually in The Irishman to de-age De Niro and, and, and Pesci and all those folks. It's something that seems like, I mean, it's not quite like a commodity technology, but it seems like 
we're going to see this more and more and more on a standard camera rig. I would be surprised if in the next five years there isn't several cameras that just include that as part of the whole thing because it, it makes everything so much easier. Then you get a dude like Shamook involved, like we mentioned, the visual effects artist who did the deep fake improvements, I guess, um, on, on YouTube of Leia in Rogue One, and I think he did Tarkin and some others. They brought him in. It's official. His name's Sam Head. He was kind of a, a consultant and an advisor, I think, was the, the way they described the role. Does that sound yep. right to you guys? Mm-hmm. So this dude being, he's not just, you know, some kid with a gaming PC in his mom's basement. He's a legitimate VFX artist and engineer. Engineer in the sense that he's a software developer and creator, and he's, he's on that level. He's now officially involved. They're out with it. They mentioned him. That gives us a pretty clear indication, as Mike put in the notes, that this dude has to be working on Indiana Jones. 100%. And I think that was the rumor, right, to begin with? Well, I think the rumor was that people were saying, oh, you can totally tell Shamook's influence as if, you know, <laughs> ILM was just a bunch of schmucks before then. The, I think the rumor was going around that it was like, oh, Shamook hasn't even worked on a Star Wars project yet. So it's nice to see that, you know, this is another scene where it's like, you know, this technology, deepfake technology has been largely o- open source. And so if you get it into the hands of someone else who knows what they're doing, that's where I think Shamook had kind of led up to where he was at enough to get noticed. Yeah. But again, this, I think we had talked about this in the episode breakdown. I mean, just having Luke Skywalker 1983 version in broad daylight, that's like, you know what I mean? That's like, that's the biggest flex in VFX is when you do it in 2 p.m., barely after high noon, the harshest light, you know, and it was beautiful. It was incredible. They did that, you know, because you think about it, we're talking about Dean Cundy. We'll talk about him as the DP of most of the show, but (laughs) that's always how they got Jurassic Park to look so good because most of the movies at night. Mm -hmm. So you can't see missing wires and all that stuff. Right. So the fact that they did that in the middle of the day was like, yeah, don't worry. We got this. But they did the research to be able to flex that way. Oh yeah. I think another flex is just Luke when he's kind of like going through his lightsaber motions in front of Grogu. The lightsaber blade crosses over Luke's face. I'm like, that cannot be easy. (laughs) It has to be extremely difficult for that to continue to look like 1983 Luke Skywalker when things are moving in front of his face. Man, it's impressive. The research that they did, it makes so much sense just seeing it in this breakdown, but... So many movies are made where they put a bunch of actors on a green screen and the director of photography, who is undoubtedly very skilled in every scenario, is still kind of just dealt what they're dealt and they have to go out and out there and work with what they're given. So it's like, okay, I don't know what the final background is going to look like. So I'm just going to light this the best I can in front of a green screen. And that doesn't necessarily always match up with the final product. It affects acting, all this kind of stuff. So they instead went out and they found every possible lighting scenario. They put him out under shade, direct light, hard side light, overhead, all this kind of stuff to really like test the system and see where the defect technology had the hardest time coping with it, where, where they could break the system essentially, and then went in and shot and lit everything. And they did it in the volume as well, all the different types of scenarios they could just dial in over and over and over with the volume. You know, rather than trying and 
and failing or half-assed succeeding on a dozen different movies. They went out and ran like scientific experiments almost to learn how to do this the best. And that's exactly the level of commitment and preparation work that you need to fuck with bringing back a character like Luke Skywalker for this much screen time. Respect. Couple things non VFX related about Luke, and then we'll we'll kind of uh, close with this quote from Filoni. You notice that Filoni was talking about Luke's path and it being similar to Qui Gon, mm-hmm. and then they show the clip of Ahsoka saying, "So much like your father." Yeah, that seems to confirm that it it's not what we figured it was. We thought it, she was referring to Grogu. We were wrong, or maybe that's just <laughs> the behind the scenes. That's the gallery editor's choice. Yeah. And they're purposely like, leave it ambiguous. Either way, I'm going to say like, I don't get, like, it's heavier that she says that saying anything to Luke about Anakin. It's heavier in that sense. But dare I say, it seems a little forced now Yeah, that it is her saying that, that Luke is like his father. It seems a little forced in that moment. Great line. Love the line. But right when it happens now, I'm just like, mm, you didn't stick that landing. It's kind of because it, it comes out of nowhere relative to the line before it that Luke says, mm-hmm. you know? Totally. I mean, you you want to hear that line. We all want to hear that line. But yeah. just like we said when we were covering that episode, it was like, what? Mm-hmm. What did she mean? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really cool to see Filoni just break down too when he was talking about Luke going down the Qui-Gon path. Yeah. How, you know, because they've never met, maybe that doesn't necessarily make sense. But then he's like, but Qui-Gon traded Obi-Wan. Obi-Wan traded Anakin. You know, it's all there within a generation or two. Let's play that clip right now. I've always felt with Luke that he is a step more on kind of the Qui-Gon Jinn path, even though he didn't really know Qui-Gon. But if you go Qui-Gon taught Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan taught Luke, you can get that kind of uh, methodology there. It's also interesting because Qui-Gon taught Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan taught Anakin. So Obi-Wan teaches father and son, which I find compelling. And then father teaches Ahsoka. Very compelling. Very compelling. <laughs> I'm compelled. I know that. <laughs> so compelled. compelled. So compelled, bro. The other thing he says that was really interesting to me, and we could talk at length about this, but we won't. I thought it was really interesting that Filoni thinks that Luke is a good or great mentor for Grogu because he doesn't try to influence him either direction. He gives him a choice. It kind of goes fully in the face of the idea that I think we were pretty set on that they put him with Luke because it's a perfect seed planted for everything falling apart leading up to the sequel trilogy. But I don't, I don't know. It's interesting because I still think, yeah, it's good to give him a choice, but how many choices do you really give a child that's going to affect the rest of their life and trust them with that? You know what I mean? But Grogu is not a child. That's the other thing. I don't know. It's 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 a very interesting concept in that Luke also recognizes, I'm sure, but it's like at that point, no, I don't know if he does, right? I mean, you have yeah. you have Obi-Wan who's this kind of like benevolent understanding of like he didn't glorify the Jedi when Luke right. talks to him, right? And he could have been like, oh, the you know, he says, you know, the Jedi were, you know, the guardians of peace and all that kind of stuff. But like, he didn't give him like four hours of war stories about all the stuff that they did yeah, back in my day. He, he understands <laughs> that like at the end of the day, it's like things got very simple, very quick after order 66. Right. And so all of that is very interesting for, for him to not teach Luke. And of course, 
you know, you don't know if this was <laughs> the intention of Lucas, but, you know, looking back on it now, it's like, you know, do you think, do you think through, through Luke and through hearing from Ahsoka, did they have more conversations? Cause isn't that, isn't it, you could also be like, Hey, Ahsoka, you're a Jedi. She's like, well, let me tell you a little bit about the Jedi. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, there's yeah. so many, like for, for if, if Luke is like the, the only other Jedi I know that's out there that's fully trained might be my sister, not fully trained, but a, a Jedi mm-hmm. and Ahsoka Tano. And yeah. she is like literally said when she was a teenager, I'm no Jedi. I don't know. Yeah. Hell of a place to be. Makes you think. Makes you think. We we definitely talked about it. I think kind of built into the story of where we wound up with Luke and the last Jedi. There's obviously failure uh, on the path of Luke between Return of the Jedi and the last Jedi. So there has to be a reason why he failed. And because he has no mentor at this point, I think we kind of went down the path of saying like he's being very strict to the Jedi texts. Right. And I think that he could have the book behind him and just be like, it says here, give the kid uh, a choice, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like, and then he turns around and it's like, okay, Grogu, <laughs> you have to choose between. The so, sacred like, text. It, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, he, he might really be like, well, it says here, I have to present a path, two paths and let the kid choose, you know, instead of doing what, maybe a Qui-Gon would have done. So I think that yeah. that, that kind of all trends with him being a little too strict to the Jedi text because he doesn't have anyone to tell him not to until right. literally in The Last Jedi when Yoda shows up and he's like, screw those books, man. I'm Yoda. School is for fools. <laughs> Yo, I'm Yoda. Screw those books, man. He did teach him some things, though. Clearly there was an impact and there's a there's a great point that rodriguez makes points out the fact that the first time grogu ever uses the force with his eyes open is when he connects with the rancor yeah that's great and he finally does close his eyes and he kind of settles because he's still worn out at the end but because of the emotional emotional connection and kind of sending love or tranquility or peace through the force he's able to do that and understand it and control it rather than just using it as something that he closes his eyes and lashes out with. So even more beautiful, deep meaning underneath that cute puppy moment, basically. Oh, speaking of last thing, and this is my, uh, this is my pre quote of the week quote, Danny Trejo. I don't trust anybody that don't like dogs. (laughs) Yes. So good. All right, let's do. I love you. I know. I love you. I know. Nick has some comments from the patrons about their favorite moments from Discord. Do I? Let's see. Favorite moment from H. Clark. Timora playing guitar with the crew was awesome. We didn't mention that. Yeah. A lot of guitar, just walking around with guitar. Did you catch the one shot, I want to say, of the of Garza Whip's cantina blowing up? And there's a slow-mo shot of that. In the foreground is Robert Rodriguez like doing like a who like strum with his guitar. Yeah, Townsend (laughs) motion, yeah. Yeah, that one kind of, I don't think I saw that until like the second go around of me watching this. Epic. Nice. Thanks, Henry Clark. Yeah. How about you guys? Mike, what was your favorite moment of this whole thing? You know, I just, I think all in all, it it makes me really happy. And let me just flex a little bit, okay? Because I have some (laughs) people that I know that work on the set and... um 
you know, it just makes you appreciate again that these people in a very uncertain time where most of us were having really hard conversations with our family in November 2020 to be like, listen, I'm not going to have Thanksgiving dinner together because of COVID. This crew was getting to work being like, we're going to tell Boba Fett's story after he got out of the Sarlacc pit. And we're going to tell that story too. And it makes me just see that like people seemed happy on set that really they deserve some recognition for the fact that they got through it. And I know that things were rushed. I know that there were things production-wise that probably, you know, if they would have maybe not had more people on set, but, you know, COVID's like the policies were changing every week, um, especially in California where they're filming stuff. And, you know, whole sets were uh, getting shut down for weeks during this thing. So I, it, all they had all, some crazy masks. It was double, yeah, double mask. Did you Filoni know, he had like some crazy, almost like halo mask looking thing. Yeah, but did you see how he painted it? It was painted yeah. like a goalie mask. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> which I love, but all in all, I think really, uh, the, the most exciting thing for me to see is that we're getting more star Wars and that there's a lot of people who are working on these projects truly do love it. And that's really all I can ask for. Um, I wish we would have got a little bit of more of the Mandalorian details, but I know this was the story about Book of Boba Fett and it was the focus on, on Rodriguez. And I think that's great, but I mean, there's great, great stuff in here and all in all, I'm excited for what they're going to do with Boba Fett. Because again, if you're a fan of him, this just opened his story wide up. So specifically name one moment, call it your favorite. (sighs) It's complicated. Do Do it. I would say Tamura talking about what it was like as someone who wears costumes, I would say when he goes... Wearing that armor gives you a sense of power. And uh, as soon as you put it on, you kind of feel, you feel it too. You feel it from the inside. So uh, you feel a little bit more powerful and stronger. And it's interesting to note that even when I've got the helmet on, you know, and Robert's watching a lot of the cuts in the edit, he, he still feels... The character coming through the helmet as well, you know, just little things that just the way the helmet might only move a little bit, but you kind of get a sense of what I'm doing underneath the helmet and it's still oozing through. I'm building a Boba Fett costume right now and you put that helmet on specifically, you put the Mandalorian's helmet on and you just kind of have like a you're like, hmm, someone better play this theme song because I feel like a badass. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I can I can empathize with Tamura on that. Nick, how about you? I'm going to go with something we haven't talked about yet. I guess we haven't talked about it in depth, but the surprise of Rosario Dawson basically thought she was going to set to have a scene with Plo Koon, and it wound up being yeah. Mark Hamill. <laughs> I just, I couldn't believe I was standing there in front of him and we're working together. Like, again, I've got lightsabers and there's like a baby Yoda an actual Luke Skywalker in front of me. Like, I can't believe I didn't faint that day. The old Plo Koon ploy again. Pretty funny. Because it's just so... Don't you think that it's it has a potential to derail things if the actor or actress is, like, not necessarily that good? Like, they're, maybe they're, like... Yeah. Not, not, I don't want to say not good, but maybe they're more of a role and they're thinking, like, who they're going to be bouncing off just acting wise and all this stuff. And then you get there and surprise. It's like, what if you were really more of a method method actor? And you were like, wait, now I'm, I'm kind of screwed up now. But yeah, obviously yeah. you show up and Mark Hamill's there. You're going to be like, 
Uh, is it cool if Ahsoka does a backflip right now? Because that's what I feel like doing. <laughs> I am going to go with... It's, it's hard not to reference exactly what you just talked about and all the Luke stuff. Because the technology nerd in me is obsessed with that. The intersection of that and Luke Skywalker and Ahsoka. It's just magic. But because I love Tamara Morrison so much, I'm going to say the specific moment was when he was, he was in kind of a tent. He was sweating his ass off. He's about to go to set. And he was saying something like, I need some emotions. I need some energy like from uh, his Maori ancestral history. But I'm blessed because I draw on my Maori roots. We have the haka to draw on, that energy. We have the waiata, tangi, the pa, the pokeka. All these forms of song that come from our ancestors that kind of put me in the right mode or mood. I thought that was amazing. And then the larger, I guess, favorite moment or series of moments would be talking about his relationship with Ming-Na Wen. And I think someone else said something like it's, oh, it's Kathleen Kennedy says it, you see them together and it feels like they've known each other for their whole lives because they, they were so connected. She was such a, a great wingman, a great character to kind of carry moments where he wasn't central to it. That stuff was beautiful and our bad for not talking about Ming-Na Wen more because she's the shit. Yeah, everyone seems to really dig her. And just, I loved how Robert Rodriguez was like mentioned, like a look that she had, oh. you know, the Fennec look or whatever he, he, he said. Yeah. That was really cool. Cause I think that is part of her charm as an assassin is she, she really is kind of the muscle, you mm -hmm. know, like she is almost like what you would assume like uh, Chrysanthemum would be in a certain way, where just having her as. Boba's hand basically is like threatening enough. So she doesn't really have too many lines. Sometimes she just has a look and it's kind of like, well, I'm going to look at you this way, which means I'm going to kill you or keep it up and I'm going to kill you because that's all she needs to do, which is very, very dope. The Fennec look is worth a thousand words. <laughs> She's also uh, the embodiment of the, do you want me to kill them meme from the craft? Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, that was from uh, Waterboy. Same actress, oh. different movie. Oh, yeah. Feruza Balk. Feruza Balk. Yeah. And that came after the craft, right? And that's probably yes. why they put it in there. Yeah. Because right? yeah. okay. remember, he's trying to take the test and he looks up and <laughs> he's like, yeah. he's like, this is hard. She's like, you want me to kill him? He's like, no, that's okay. <laughs> Incredible. And also, uh, she was Chun-Li in uh, Street Fighter. Oh. Let's also remember that. All right, let's wrap it up. I can't get enough of this behind the scenes stuff. I used to be so not into it for fear of demystifying star wars but now i fully embrace it and i'm glad we're getting it disney plus is even more worth our money it's clear to see that there's an extension of the fandom that is creating the thing that we love it's very plain to see yep so if you're unhappy about things but you hear the creators saying the right things sorry brother <laughs> that lays fully on you <laughs> that's a yp not an mp <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, Mike, what do you got going on? You um, you just wrapped up season two of Armor Party. Tell them some things and where to find you on social media. Well, uh, I called it season one, actually, oh, uh, because this yeah. was this was uh, last week for May the 4th was our one year anniversary of Armor Party hitting the airwaves. We got to 22 episodes. We have been interviewing both professional costumers, uh, prop makers, and then also a lot of really, really, really talented hobbyists. 
And it's been really cool to watch their journey because people like uh, my buddy John Rodriguez is actually working for Funko Studios now. And uh, he's gone from just being a hobbyist to this is now his job, which is amazing. There have been all kinds of people that I've met doing the show that have really just made all of this makes sense in a lot of ways. Um, the most recent episode that you can listen to now is with Brian Mattias, who is the concept artist for Lucasfilm for The Mandalorian. And he's probably, in my opinion, the most influential artist of the last easily five years, especially for costuming, because his concept art has really, really, really inspired a lot of people to start building and has such a great aesthetic that is so very much World War II gritty inspired, lived in Star Wars. Uh, so his story and, and listening to how far ahead they have to be in terms of like, he's like, I'm a fan of this stuff. So I only want to know what I need to know. And mm -hmm. so he designs, you know, the, here's here's one tidbit. We're going to have Din Djarin, fighting a crate dragon brian's like whoa okay cool i get to draw this which is awesome but like i don't want to know anything else you yeah. know and it goes to show you like exactly the point that nick just made these are fans that are doing this these are people that like star wars has influenced their life to get them to the career that they're at and now they're working on star wars which i think is that's the energy i need in 2022 i think that is so cool so Armor Party wraps up season one, part of the Thank the Maker Network. So again, Adam, this is such a treat for us to be able to celebrate that because I came to you a little over a year ago and said, I have a crazy idea for something. Do you want to do it? And look at where we've ended up, my dudes. Amazing. Awesome. Look how old you've become. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's cool. So you can find uh, the show Armor Party at Armor Party Show on Instagram, and you will find us all up in Celebration, all mm. up in Anaheim in about two weeks at the time you're listening to yes. this. Wow. Whoa. Nick, what do you got going on between now and then? Well, Bayside has a song coming out. Uh, actually, it's out right now. May 12th, which is today. We have a new song called Strangest Faces, so please go check that out. Uh, should have a video for it, uh, I want to say tomorrow it comes out, the 13th. And on a more personal note, I wrote a book, a children's book, with uh, the folks over at HE Creative. It's called That's Okay. It's for pre-order right now. I think it'll ship out uh, by the end of June. Uh, but we've got a lot of cool things going on with that. Like if you pre-order it, I'm going to do a read-through of it and send you a video. So please pre-order it. It's something really rad that uh, I really am excited about. And just like everything else I do, I need your support. So please go buy that. HE Creative is an art company over in the UK, um, and they do a bunch of punk rock-inspired books. So I'm just happy to be a part of that uh, family. It's so cute that you're part of a children's book. It's adorable as hell. I'm not smart enough to write an adult book, so. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anyone that. Just embrace it. I would like a I would like a signed copy, Nick, for my daughter. You got it. Cool. Thanks, man. I feel like I feel like you'd know a guy, you know. I get I get someone to write my name. Cool. <laughs> Patrons, thanks for hanging out here in this during this recording with us. If you listener want to be one of these patrons who listens live, you want exclusive merch, you want Discord access bonus content patreon.com slash thank the maker pod is where you can go to get that you can follow the podcasts of course at thank the maker pod on instagram and tiktok at thank the maker on twitter all of my personal stuff is at adam the skull and i switched it up this week but let's do quote of the week right now at the very end uh closing the doc i 
believe Favreau closes the dock. It might be Filoni. But towards the end of the dock, Favreau hits us with kind of what Star Wars is all about and being what being a hero is all about. So Favreau says, the nature of these storylines are baked into the cake when you're dealing with the hero's journey because it's all about becoming part of something larger than yourself. That's what heroism really is. Heroism is putting your individual needs aside and making them subservient to something bigger than yourself. Love that. Mr. Spock. (laughs) (laughs) Needs of the many. Everybody, thanks for listening. Patrons, thank you for being here with us, dudes. Good hang. And until next week, may the force be with you. 